Hello and welcome to my Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. I received a message this week quoting the American author Miriam Adeney, and it said, You will never be completely at home again because part of your heart will always be elsewhere. That is the price you pay for the richness of loving and knowing people in more than one place. This is a podcast about the Camino de Santiago, a series of ancient pilgrimages across Europe. I walked my second Camino this year, a thousand kilometres from Lourdes to Santiago de Compostela. Camino de Santiago translates to the way of St. James, and pilgrims have walked the trail for well over a thousand years. It's said the remains of Christ's Apostle St. James are interred in the Gothic Cathedral in Santiago de Compostela, where the pilgrimage winds up. The Spanish adopted St. James, or Santiago, as their patron saint after he fought alongside the Iberians in the years after Christ's crucifixion. Centuries later, the Vatican determined pilgrims who walked the Camino de Santiago would be absolved of their sins. And so, the legend of the pilgrimage began. Well, my guest this week is the Sydney author, actor and playwright, Elsa Piper. Elsa walked the Camino in 2010 Carrying the Sins of Her Friends and Family. Her book, Sinning Across Spain, was an enormous success. An updated version has just been released. Elsa, welcome. Thanks so much, Dan. What on earth were you thinking in 2010? (laughs) I don't think I was thinking. I think I was reacting. Um, I had actually walked the Camino Frances in 2009 for myself, perhaps for my own sins. I don't know. It didn't feel like that. It just felt delicious. Um, and I came home and I was, I was adapting a play, a play called The Duchess of Malfi by John Webster, who's a contemporary of Shakespeare's. And uh, it was going to be performed by Bell Shakespeare Company and I was on a bit of a time limit. And then I, I found this weird thing in the original script that said that there were pilgrims. There was a scene with these pilgrims who rocked up and I thought, oh, do we need them in this production? So I went researching pilgrimage and I found this odd little thing that said that in medieval times a person could be paid to carry the sins of another to a holy place and when they got there the person who stayed home would get the sort of indulgence of having their sins absolved and I presume the little person who'd walked had to schlep around and walk (laughs) back home again you know take their blisters with them and for some reason I think it's the actor thing which is about empathizing and stepping Mm. into the shoes of another Mm. person yeah yeah or maybe it was just that it was such a sort of tantalising idea. I put out, without thinking about it, this little email that said, I will walk off your sins. Pilgrim seeks sinners for mutually beneficial arrangement. You can tell it was pretty jokey. Um, and I emailed it and it sort of went viral. So, in fact, some of the people I carried sins for, I didn't know because oh. it went viral. Someone sent it to someone who sent it to someone and it got to... Um, Alan Bro, who was on radio in Melbourne at that time. And so I went on air on his radio program and people donated. And when I say donated, I did make a distinction between carrying them voluntarily and being paid because the original thing was about being paid. And I thought there's a difference between martyrdom, which I excel at in my own life, (laughs) (laughs) um, and being paid. So I asked people to pay, whether it was, you know, $8 for a night in a refugio or whatever. I just said to them, you've got to pay me. It's got to be an exchange. Well, people confessed real stuff, like really real stuff. So I got a bit frightened then because I it, people took it more seriously than I had. And so I went off with my little quite lengthy list actually 
and walked from Granada in the south to up to Finisterre, which was 1,300 kilometres. So how heavy did it weigh on your, on your back, this, this, this list? I mean, and I mean that obviously in a, in a, in a metaphorical sense, but it must have driven you nuts. There were days when I did think I was going barking mad. For instance, I had written all the sins on a piece of paper and I'd put the initial of the person beside each one because, you know, even before I left Australia, I had this thing that I was carrying these secrets, these confessions, and that they had to stay – I mean, that was part of it. They had to stay confidential. And in my book, I named the sinners at the end. They were all happy to have their names listed, but obviously the sins are not correlated to them. So I would, you know, I would each morning I would take out this list of, you know, initials and sins and I would sit over my café con leche and read (laughs) the sins and then I would just walk for seven or eight hours. But there were days when I remember towards the end where if anyone came near me and I was reading the list, I would kind of jump and hide the list. Now, I was in Spain. No one could have read it. There were only initials, but I was sort of paranoid about this list and the secrecy and the trust, you know. So odd little things would infect me and, and certainly the sins infected me at times and, and also just the sadness of some yeah. of the stories. Really, you know, trying to meditate on them meant that there were days that I got affected by them. Conversely, on the days when walking just made me happy, which walking does to me, I'd suddenly realised that I was kind of out of my head and in my body or in the air and happy and I'd come crashing to earth thinking, you're a bad sin carrier, you've got to stay serious and, you know, I mean, it was a real head trip. Mm. That's interesting because I, I wondered, did you ever look at that list and think, you know, oh, Vivian, what were you thinking when you did that? <laughs> I mean, really, did you think like that? Well, there were days, I mean, I was certainly trying to investigate what were they, you know, I mean, and, yeah. and and people took the word sin to mean whatever they wanted. So, for instance, there was one confession which was a person who had, who used the word selfishness about the sin and said that he had not intervened to stop a friend from committing suicide and saw that as a sin and had carried it, had not even told his partner about this. And it happened years before, but he had been in real grief and guilt about that all those years. And I would think about that and think about it. It made me very sad, but I could never get to the point of thinking that was a sin, you know? Mm. And so part of the feedback to him was always, try as I might, I think you're thinking about this in a framework that is not right. You know, it's it's not sinful to have not intervened, you know? And But it was very interesting because I walked with someone who was walking sort of for his brother who had suicided um, after being abused as a child. And so the suicide thing came up quite a lot along mm. the way too. Mm. Yeah, that's it. Um, and, and I suppose, yeah, ha- trying to cope with something by the almost trance-like nature of the Camino, we'll get to later in the interview mm. because it's it's part of your experience as well now subsequently, and that's what the reissuing of the book is about. Mm. What did you think you learned by carrying the sins of others? Well, um, I mean, at the end of the book, it's in, quite, it wasn't actually something I wrote for the book. I was keeping a journal, obviously, and I wrote one night very quickly what I call my credo, which was, you know, I believe this, I believe that. And when I came home, I thought, oh, wow, I learned what I do and don't believe, which was a really interesting thing for me. But one of those things is that I believe in confession with all my heart. Now, by that, I don't mean necessarily the Catholic notion of confession. Um, But I do think whether it be 
sitting down eye to eye, you know, with another person. I mean, we're doing a form of confession at the moment. We're in a room together trying to talk as honestly as we can to each other and I'm prepared to say to you my failings. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something about that moment of, of saying to another person, this is the thing I'm least proud of. This is the thing I regret. This is the thing that caused harm to someone else. Um, I think there's something profoundly beautiful in that, but also profoundly releasing because the changes that my sinners had, and there were big changes as a result of it, I don't for a moment think they were to do with me. I think they were to do with the fact that one other person listened to them, took them seriously, and as a result of that, they took themselves maybe more seriously or they thought about themselves in a different way. So for six weeks as I was walking people kind of felt this compulsion to look at their own actions in the light of the way I might be looking at them. And that's what I think confession is. It's like another person takes you seriously enough to consider this thing that you want to tell them. And as a result of it, some sort of release happens. Yeah, that unburdening, isn't it? Yeah. That unburdening. Yeah. And, 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 we are, and I've got a question here a little bit later, but I'll, I'll raise it now. Why do you think we carry so much of that with us? Why do you mm. think we hurt ourselves when we perhaps shouldn't really? Yeah, it's a funny thing, you know. I mean, I think, I think we're all ta- we're talking about forgiveness with confession, and we're talking about all that. But I think the most difficult thing for anyone is to forgive themselves. Yeah, and I'm really aware of that with the stories that were given to me. But even subsequently, you know, I think one of the things that happens when someone confesses to you is that you think, oh, I can completely see how that could happen. I mean, it's easy to say this about smallish things, I suppose. But I mean, even if I think about some of the bigger things, you know like murder or, God, let's not go to pedophilia, but let's just say, you know, these really big, what I feel are the big crimes, torture. So often now we're finding out that if you look back into someone's history, there is a pathology. You know, mm. I was actually talking yesterday to the crime writer, Michael Robotham, and he has he has ghostwritten the biogs of many, many um, criminal psychologists and he just says it's almost it's almost impossible to find any kind of criminal where you can't track the behaviour to something that has occurred in yeah, your early life. Yeah, that's right. And that's that doesn't necessarily mean forgiveness, but what it does mean is that you can kind of begin to understand. And I felt like walking and thinking about what I'd been told made me consider where I had erred in similar ways, you know. I'd committed every one of those sins in one shape or another, actually. <laughs> so Shame to say. You called it. You called the sins your cargo, and they included anger and envy and pride and lust. Mm. Well, it's interesting that I just read that line after what you just said, because there's a little bit of all of that in all of us, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, I reckon there is. And you know, one of the things that's interesting. I mean, t- take lust for example. People love to. Um, I mean, there's a very big big story in the book about one of the sinners who gave me, I suppose, what we'd call lust. It was a backstory about having had an affair and the consequences of that was big fallout. But, you know, I was married at the time that I was walking. Um, I'm since widowed. But, you know, the, the thing about that is people are loath to admit that because you're married in a deeply committed relationship, it doesn't stop lust rising, you know. I mean, and in fact, I always remember my husband saying to me one day when we were driving along in a car and this divine, beautiful goddess girl of about 25 walked past the car and both of our eyes just kind of followed her. And he looked at me and he said, oh, he said, you caught me, didn't you? And I said, you know, if you didn't look at that girl and feel something appreciative, I would think you were dead. You know, it's like t- somehow to deny those things is seems to me more of a lie than to say, wow, 
I felt something stir mm. in me when I saw yeah. that person. Yeah. It's whether you act on it, isn't it? I mean, That's with right. all those things, it's about the step because, I mean, Shakespeare says that thing of, you know, thinking makes it so. I mean, does the sin arise in the mind or is it about the action? Well, I'm all for the action. And I think that the mind sometimes lets us go to those places so that we don't commit the sin in real life. You know, it's like yeah. you can imagine it. You don't have to do it, man. Well, I think well, that's uh, my wife says exactly the same thing. If you didn't look or you tried to convince me that you weren't looking, I'd know that you were trying to cover up. <laughs> She's a good woman. <laughs> she is. She knows me too well too. You came home and you wrote Sinning Across Spain. This is after your first Camino. Yes. A hugely successful account of your journey. And you say... And I'll quote you, in dusty pueblos and epic landscapes, miracles found you, angels in both name and nature eased your path. So tell us about the Camino de Santiago. What makes it special to you, Elsa? Oh, I mean, I am a walker. I've always been a walker, so I make that disclaimer. The walking part of it is really the hard part for me. I don't have to make quite the adjustment that some people make. So I very quickly get into what is like a kind of a trance state with the walking and I lose self, and that's quite a big burden for me. If you wanted to ask me what my biggest thing is that I carry, it's that kind of self as, you know, responsible head girl, kind of <laughs> rushing to sort of write letters to people and keep yeah, up with yeah. all the people I love and all of that. So out there on the road, I mean, I'm not one of those people who has the iPhone on all the time or any of that stuff. I mean, back when I did my first couple of Caminos, they didn't exist. Um, so... There's this sense of just losing self and hours and hours of what feels like genuine emptiness, a kind of meditation that I can't achieve by sitting still. Um, and also I think there's a sort of a beauty about being allowed to spend whole days at that speed. They say walking is the speed at which we think. Yes. Um, and I feel like walking is the speed at which I don't think, you know. Yeah. It's so beautiful to me to be empty of thought for long periods of time. The other thing is I really, really love the Spaniards. And in fact, you know, I've also walked in France and Portugal. Um, I love the thing of being in another language and being reduced to a child because I can speak those languages, but not like an adult. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, so there's something wonderful about being reduced to this sort of simplicity of your basic needs and having to kind of perform anything else you know you really have to work to say something so the things you say are either basic or really important and you have to find that way to say them and you don't talk trivia you don't just talk you know I mean you do talk the weather of course <laughs> yeah yeah but it's interesting because what I loved also was that when you get to sit down and have the coffee and the piece of Santiago tart <laughs> It's the best coffee. It's the best piece of cake because you've just walked 25 Ks. And so yeah. you you just absolutely, or that's a cold beer and you think that's the best beer I've ever had because you've just walked so far. But when you sure. are walking, uh, and I think it was Rachel Rukert in one of my uh, previous podcasts, she said, you never forget how much you appreciate seeing plastic chairs on the side of the road <laughs> because you know you're going to get something to eat or, or a beer. You never lose sight of that, do you, The being kind of a grateful pilgrim? It's true. I think gratitude's one of the huge gifts of the Camino. I mean, you know, the thing, too, of the way that people come out of those little pueblos, I mean, particularly because the book, although it talks about the Frances, that journey is the Mozarabe, which goes from Granada north right. to Santiago. 
and it's a long road and so and it's not much traveled because you have to be able to from the beginning walk 30 plus kilometers so people have to be you know and it hasn't got the same sort of infrastructure on it um and along there people when i walked and it may be a little different now but not much i don't think they're not all that accustomed to seeing pilgrims. And so they would rush out. And because I was a woman alone, they would just stuff things into my pack. And my, you know, and I always felt this incredible sense that they were endowing me with something that was special. They reminded me that pilgrimage was special. And that was a great lesson, too, that I was always really grateful for. That just when I was thinking, oh, I'm just walking another day, someone would say, make a prayer for me in Santiago. Yeah. You know, you're a pilgrim. You're carrying this important work. You know, this is important. I was one lady saying to me, it's important work that you're doing, all you pilgrims. And thinking, oh, that's an interesting Yes. Take on it, and I yes. was very grateful for that that idea. You know, important work. Yeah, I'd never thought of it like that. That's really interesting. Mm. I'll explore that. It's important work. Well, it's partly it's important work for ourselves, of course. But yeah. the thing is, I think someone once said to me, and it was after Peter died. They said the best thing you can do is get yourself healthy, because if we all just get ourselves healthy, then we can actually look after other people. And, you know, maybe that's also part of it, that if nothing else, the pilgrims are out there kind of getting a little better, you know, and taking that betterness back home with them to be able to be a bit more open to people, a bit more accepting of people, you know, that each pilgrim who goes home hopefully takes a little bit of that kindness and generosity and gratitude with them. It manifests itself, Elsa, with me no more than when I'm in the lineup for the shops and <laughs> I'm waiting at the checkout. And people say, oh, you know, because I've got, I got to feed two teenage boys. The trolley is <laughs> packed, you see. And people come up with the one bottle of milk and they say, do you mind? I say, I have all the time in the world. Isn't that beautiful? I say it all. Uh, whenever I get the opportunity to say, it's fine. I have all the time in the world. And people, you, the look on their face, they think, you, what? Lu- you lucky. How can, he, how can he have all the time in the world? And I can't. Well, of course, everybody, everybody can. can. Mm. But as I've learned from the Camino, I have all the time in the world. It's and it's, it's it's a very simple thing to say to yourself and to others, but it, it really resonates with me. And that's one of the things that perhaps, you know, yeah, mm. very important work. I'm and able you know, to tell other people that they have time too. Yeah, because that's such a reminder. Because I reckon time, the idea that we don't have time or the feeling that we don't have time is what creates snap judgments and bad yes. sort of relationships with people often. You know, I mean, I'm listening to all a lot of the stuff that's in the news at the moment and I think how quick we are to judge, you know, whether it be about someone's misdemeanours or whatever. And I think sometimes if we actually took 10 minutes and thought, hmm, so what's the other side of that? What's the other side of that? It might only take 10 minutes, but we don't give ourselves 10 minutes. Yeah. It's like listening to another person. You know, that that thing of actually taking the time to really listen and not to be thinking about what you're going to say next. Yeah, that's right. You know? Well, media in 140 characters yeah, yeah. sums it up perfectly, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's let's you returned home, mm. uh, and now you've up, updated sitting across Spain, and that's mm. the reason I'm talking to you today. Something catastrophic occurred in your life. Something completely unexpected. You lost your husband, Peter. You called him your true north and you write in this latest updated version about revival and dealing with the grief of Peter's death by walking again on the Camino now can I ask you it's a very difficult question how are you now (laughs) Um, I think I'm in really good shape Um, I think you know it's now three and a half years since he died and um, 
you know, the first year was shock and awe and I kind of reacted very strangely. I just got rid of everything, literally everything, everything we had, everything of, almost everything of his, everything. And I arrived, you know, in Sydney to my little flat with just a few boxes and oddly three little tables and one strange little piano chair. Not even things that were valuable, but they had sentimental attachments. Mm. But nothing else. I mean, when my neighbours came to help me unpack, they kind of couldn't believe it. And there was something about, I don't know, I still haven't quite worked that bit out. Um, And then I began a process of repair that I got some very good counselling. But the big thing was there came a moment when I thought, I felt like everything had been broken. So he died of a brain hemorrhage. It was very sudden. I wasn't with him, which I... You want to talk about forgiveness. You know, I couldn't forgive myself about that. I mean, I still don't know that I quite forgive myself. I feel like if I'd been there, I could have stopped it, no matter what everyone says. And everyone tells me, you know, doctors, coroners, everyone told me I couldn't have done anything. Um, But he was completely well and we'd been on the phone and texting and all of that. And then I couldn't get him on the phone and he was gone, you know. So there came a moment um, last year when I thought, I want to know if there's any bit of me that isn't broken. And the most important bit to find out about felt like the walker because that was mine. You know, I would, Pete never did the big walks with me. Yeah. And, you know, I I knew I didn't have the true north to orient myself to, that that, that would be a weird thing because always I felt like even if we didn't talk, there was some, he used to call himself base camp. I called him true north and he called himself base camp. But uh, so I walked and I thought I'd walk in France because Peter's great love was the French culture. He was a brilliant French speaker and he used to read half an hour of French every day and, you know, I would speak to him in my sort of very bad French and he'd speak back (laughs) in his very good. And I just felt like it would be a nice thing to walk in his landscape. So I went on the Le Puy route Mm -hmm. um, and I started about 300 kilometres north of Saint-Jean, Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port. And uh, it was was really scary. I mean, I, I, I felt like I was doing something precarious, which I'd never felt before, ever. Um, And I think it was the thing of not having an orientation. Um, But very quickly, it was also incredibly supportive and kind. And then there was this weird little thing. I have an obsession with snails, which I got from the first Camino, and I have a little tiny snail tattooed inside one finger. And suddenly there was this diversion that was called the Chemin de l'Escargot, the way of the snail. Fantastic. Yeah. And I took that path and I was all the way I was walking towards the Pyrenees which was snow covered and it was scary and uh, on the way of the snail there was just which is just a one day diversion you know um, there was just this moment when I was out there looking at the Pyrenees when I had this real sort of hit of happiness and happiness I realized was the thing that I felt guilty about after Pete died because he wasn't alive to share it and I remember that day saying to him you know I really I want to be happy, Pete. And it felt like such treachery. It felt terrible, Um, you know, that I wanted to live and I wanted to be happy. Um, That was a big step to get over. But something about that actually, it made me understand in some weird way that the biggest sin I could ever commit, that any of us could commit, would be to have the gift of life in whatever form we've got it and to not want to be in it. I mean, I, I don't want to... You know, there are people who have terrible depression and there are people who are suffering and I get that that's something you want out of. I didn't have those things and I'd had 28 years of the most wonderful marriage to a very kind person.
it felt to me like a sin that I was sort of deliberately squashing yeah. my ability to be happy. Yeah. And that was, that was absolutely clear to me on the road, you know. Wow, what an extraordinary um, thought. And, and I, I bet you can picture exactly where you were. I can. I'll I can. bet you can. I can see the road. There was a beautiful tree sort of that I was heading towards, actually. And I remember stopping and I was going slightly uphill and beyond with the Pyrenees. And, yeah, it was a blue sky day and it just hit me in the chest as it does out there on the road. Yeah, that's right. But you, because you found the time yeah, and the yeah. space to think about it, didn't you? So you say in the book, how do you measure love <laughs> or experience or learning or gratitude? Maybe by steps. Mm. And, and I think that no one would know that better than you, perhaps, <laughs> because you can take yourself back to that day. Yeah, yeah. You can, you, you, you can go back and remember exactly what you felt. And it now, is that part of your true north? Yeah, it's a funny thing, actually. I think that um, I'm kind of living without compass at the moment and learning. And part of that has been, oddly, learning to swim because I've never been able to swim. I'm a walker, but I couldn't, I mean, I can't believe that for an Australian, I know, but I got to this ripe old age of not being able to, without being able to swim, you know. So I went and took lessons and there's this odd thing that in the water felt very frightening to me, the I can walk and I feel at peace. The water feels very, very much like going into the darkness. Yes. Um, but one of the things I decided to do was to do what I do when I – and there's a particular little mantra of Michael Lunig, the Australian poet, you know, yeah. um, that I say when I walk. And I just say it all the time, which is – and I always have. Let it go, let it out, let it all unravel, let it free, and it can be a path on which to travel. And one day in the water, I remembered, I thought, you do that. You do that without even knowing you do it. Do it now. So now when I swim, it's like I swim walking. And so I can swim and be on the road. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. I can, it's the oddest thing. It's like those things that you picture, you can then transport, or I do. I feel like I transfer them to other places too and other challenges. You know, so, um... That's amazing. Now, I just want to explore that a little bit because what you said there is very interesting to me. Because when I I do a lot of yoga, oh. and I I'm constantly ma reciting mantras in in my head, and it's how I find a sense of mindfulness, mm, mm. and how I can really wind down by by the use of these these mantras. Mm. And I found when I was walking this last Camino, having done a year's worth of yoga, um, pretty intensely for the last mm. twelve months leading up to it, that. I, I, I didn't even realize I was saying them. Wow. And so I would be all of a sudden thinking, oh, where am I? What am I doing? Yeah. And I'd look around. And again, that's another thing we've got to talk about, you know, turning and looking back. <laughs> but I'd turn and look back and think, I, what have I been thinking about for the last half an hour? And yet I'd get to, the, to my destination that day and people would say, you're just really laid back. Yeah, yeah. It's because I gave myself a chance to really unwind and in doing so – Emptied out, I think, a lot of that stuff. So my next question to you, Elsa, mm. is will you go back and are you frightened of having to revisit some of what you left behind when you go back? Um, it's funny. I often think about the two big Spanish Caminos, you know, whether it be the Frances, which was my first one, or the Mozarabe, which was the Sin Walk. And I have this sort of romantic notion of going back at the end of the French walk, I walked across the Pyrenees again and th did three days of the Francaise. And I realised I had always wanted to walk it again and I realised I don't want to. It is different now. And I think it's 
everyone meets it for the first time, but I have a memory of the numbers of people or whatever, whatever it was. And I realise that what I like is emptiness and I'm not someone who likes to walk with other people. I really like to walk alone. Like I'm quite gnarly when I get too many other people. <laughs> so, yes, I have to walk again. I mean, I can't imagine touch wood, you know, may I stay well enough. I'd like to be able to go back and back. But I think I'm going to have to find a road, maybe the Mossara Bay, but I think there's also that th- weird thing of retracing steps. Even when I'm at home, like I like a circle walk. I don't like to go out and back. Yeah. And I'm not someone who likes to go back. And you know what? You were talking about looking back. I am not someone who's great with memory because I think I am someone who's always looking forward. Yes. And one of the things about dealing with losing Pete was that for a long time I wouldn't have photos or anything around me. I could manage it if I didn't look back. That started to change in a good way that I can remember things. But I suspect I'll be looking for, you know, a, maybe the northern way or something like that, you know, a, a different route that I can do, perhaps a bit more of the French roads. Without question, I can't imagine not doing more of it because it feels to me like it is actually deeply imprinted in me now. Yes. You know, we walk and we make a footpath along the way, but it's also imprinting itself on us. I yeah. mean, look at you now. There's you no know. question. Mm. There's no mm. question about it. You know, the reason I said it because – I was I was up near the 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 sculpture there outside of Pamplona, oh, yeah. and an Irish woman said to me, uh, "Dan, Dan, Dan, stop, look back." Mm. And I turned around, and the most magnificent vista—it was absolutely breathtaking. Yeah. You know, I start rummaging for my phone, you know, to take a photo. <laughs> she said, "Don't worry about the photo; just capture it in your heart and mind." Just print it, yeah. And and, and I said, "Yeah, you know what?" I looked, and I and I. I thought, yeah, you're right. And so I saw her later that day and I said, thank you very much for saying that. She said, don't forget to look back. So I always really made a point of it. But I wanted, I've got written here, did you look back? The second time, the second time, you're going to to grieve for Peter in a sense because you want to move on. Yeah. But were you prepared to look back? Um, On the road, always, always. I mean, I do, I love that. You know, I love that moment of, because also it's completely different. It's the old thing of, you know, you look with different eyes. But if you just turn around and look back, you realise that what looked like a big hill, it's a great lesson for life, isn't it? What looked like a big hill was actually pretty small in the scheme of the landscape or, you know, that that there was something you missed. There's always something you missed. So, yeah, I do. I love that thing of looking back. Um, But I I think... uh, I think the other one for me is looking up. I mean, I'm a very big person about looking up at the sky, maybe because I grew up in Western Australia, but I love a big sky and I can get a bit lost in the sky. You know, I have to watch my feet because I look up a lot as well. Yeah, I wrote a song called Big Skies. You had that on amazing the experience. Yeah, of, on of the Masetta. The song just going zap. Yeah, that's right. It did. It zapped into my head. And if you listen, I recorded it this week. Yeah, oh, I've recorded wow. it. It's finished. So I'm just putting the finishing touches to it and it'll oh, be out soon. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. Exciting. I'll play it for you, but I can't play it for our listeners, so I shouldn't say that. <laughs> but it'll be on the podcast, won't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll put it yeah. up eventually, yeah. Uh, okay, so you keep yourself incredibly busy these days. Yeah. Uh, the book, the reissued is, is, uh, version of the book is out now. Yeah. Can I ask you a few pilgrim questions? Yeah. Do you listen to music while you walk? Not much. Only... Very rarely. Um, I remember one or two really difficult times when I did just in despair 
you know, plug it in when I was really lonely or on a bad day. And oddly enough, you too singing Walk On has a <laughs> habit of coming up on my playlist. There you go. Do you well you've you've answered. You're you're a compulsive walker. I have heard did you train before you went? What about booking ahead? Are you someone who micromanages their Camino? Not at all, but on the French one, because I was nervous after Peace's death, I did make bookings. But the other reason for doing that for me was to limit the distances. Because left to my own devices, I'll work, walk 40, 50 kilometres in a day because I just love it. And that's not great over time. No, you it's know. not. Um, even for someone who loves it. So I actually did the thing of booking into, because on that road to, you know, there's not so many refuges, booking into little jeets or, you yeah. know, um, pilgrim places, you know, shamans along the way. Um, but... Uh, that was quite interesting to limit my distance too. You know, I'd have to get in and stop by one o'clock maybe and actually just walk slowly and look at a village. I quite liked it. Actually. Yeah. Mm. And you, those long afternoons mm. are beautiful, aren't they? They are. Because you think, well, I've got nothing to do. No. And you and see the village properly, yeah. see the people. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. It's yeah. a good lesson, that one. Put your feet up. Mm. Um, now, you mentioned walking alone. Would you recommend it to everybody and do you feel safe? I, well, I would certainly recommend it. Look, I do recommend it to everyone. I mean, you can you can always find someone at day's end in a village or something. But I know that for some people, it's not why they're doing it and it's not their preference and I get that. But I think for people who want to do it, what I would say is, if someone says to you, do, you know, can I come with you? That sounds great. If you want to walk alone, hold your ground and say, actually, because I, I think that's quite hard, you know, at the moment you know, most of us in our lives to take time out alone is a really big deal. And, you know, if your best mate or even your partner says, oh, I wouldn't mind coming, quite hard to say no. But actually to say that no, if the impulse is solitude, mm. is important. Yeah. Um, scared, look, I always say I don't get scared. But in fact, there are moments on the road where weird things happen and you do get a bit scared. But it's a bit like being lost. I always feel like, well, I'm not really lost. I'm just here. I'm just wherever I am. And that's a point on the, you know, on the map. So I always try to remind myself that I'm probably in more danger walking, you know, down the streets of central yeah. Sydney than I am on a road in Spain. Yeah, really, yeah, you know? yeah. No, that's right. No, And, and you will get lost. I, I got lost twice. Um, <laughs> really good, really. Really <laughs> badly too. <laughs> really badly. So long as you didn't end up where you started. No, well, it was a disaster actually. <laughs> because I walked past the town I missed the town oh. and kept walking thinking it must be here somewhere <laughs> and I'd walked six kilometres past and so I only came to the only house the first house I came to and I asked this French woman oh. where is Arudi she said six kilometres back that way so I've wasted 12 oh. and then when I got back to the place where I was I had to walk the extra three kilometres into the town so it was a total of 15 kilometres extra kilometres extra kilometres at the end of a very long day I bet you felt every one of them too I did indeed yeah. and 15 kilometres was a lot, it's a lot. It was it, yeah it was heavy going mm. yeah, yeah it was mm. hard work and it was on bitumen too ah. The Camino and the way it makes you feel has a certain attraction. There's no question people are drawn to it. And I know I'll be back. But I have one last question for you, Elsa. You're, like I said, you're very busy. Sitting across Spain, you, you wrote the book. Now you've updated it. Are you putting it aside now? Is that chapter of your life finished, do you think? And by that I mean as well the kind of – I mean, you'll always be Peter's widow, but – but the the grieving mm. and the trying to make sense of it, the trying to deal with it. Yeah, I think in terms of that, I you know, 
the the label widow was on me in my mind for you know up until really perhaps even after the walk but i feel like these days when people say to me you know what are you what do you, yeah. you know that i can answer walker again because that's my favorite thing you know people love to say what are you and they say oh you're a writer you're an author and i always say you know actually those are things i do but in my heart I'm a walker. I think I used to be also, without understanding it, a wife. And when Pete died, Widow became really like the foreground. Mm. I think Widow is now behind in the queue. It's behind Walker again, which is really nice. But, you know, I've been thinking, I mean, I love to play with words. I'm a writer. And I've been thinking about the idea of repair, that I've gone from brokenness to repaired. And for me, repaired doesn't mean repaired. You know, people want you to take up with another partner or whatever. They see that as a sign of repair. I don't see that that's what repair... I mean, I don't know what will happen to me, but I don't want... I don't. I still feel like I am paired with Peter, but not in a way that is widow. It's just I'm grateful now. You know, you talk about grateful? Yeah. I'm grateful I had a fabulous time with a really good man, and now I don't have him present. But, you know, it's a bit like... I had my wedding ring and my engagement ring remade into a new ring. And I, she sent me the photos of them breaking apart the engagement ring to get the little stones out of it. And it was a broken thing and it made me cry. And then the next photo was this remade thing. And it's got all the little stones from my engagement ring and the wedding ring. It's just remade into a different shape. And I think it's beautiful. And I sort of feel like that's kind of what I've been trying to do and getting there. That's a great answer. That's a great answer. I just absolutely love it. Look, I know you've got somewhere to be. Congratulations on the book and your journey, both physically and spiritually, Sitting Across Spain, published by Victory Books, is available via mup.com.au, and I'll go through those details in a little little bit as well. It's been reissued and updated version. That's... I'm talking about you, Elsa. <laughs> Into 2017, it's just out now. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I always love talking to you. Thanks, Elsa. <laughs> Elsa Piper there, writer, director, actor and teacher and author of Sinning Across Spain, a memoir of walking the Camino de Santiago carrying the sins of family and friends. I received pictures over the weekend of snow covering the cathedral in Burgos. It's absolutely stunning. Not good walking weather, though. Indeed, many of the albergues are closed and will reopen in March. I was also sent a quote from the American author and blogger Mandy Hale this week. She says, Trust the weight. Embrace the uncertainty. Enjoy the beauty of becoming. When nothing is certain, anything is possible. A great message for pilgrims and for those thinking of heading off. So my guest this week was Ailsa Piper, author of Sinning Across Spain. Published by Victory Books, it's available via mup.com.au. That's mup.com.au. That's all we have time for this week. I'm Dan Mullins, and I'll be back again next week. And until then, Gwen Camino.